Well, this morning I've titled the sermon, Questions from an Exalted Life. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I want to encourage you to turn in that copy to the book of Ecclesiastes, where we will continue in seeing what does it look like to fear the Lord and to keep His commandments. I'm reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, starting in verse 1 and going through verse 15. Word of the Lord says to us this morning, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. And nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it, so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. A few of you may know how I met my wife, Brooke. It was a good Friday in 2014 where... Uh, she came to one of the Good Friday services at the church uh, where I was a pastor. And, but most of you, I would imagine none of you know the first time I saw Brooke. It was months before that, and her, her, she and her family came to an elders meeting at the church uh, where her mom was going to receive prayer from the elders uh, because her mom was about to have a serious brain surgery. For years, her life had been chaotic, to say the least. They didn't know what was going on for the longest time. Was she losing her mind at a young age? Was there something spiritually wrong with her that she was acting differently? Was, it, was she not doing enough to keep herself healthy? And then finally, someone suggested, you should have an MRI. And they found a tumor the size of a racquetball wedge between her brain. So she came to the elders meeting seeking prayer because the procedure that she was going to have the next week was serious, as any brain surgery would be serious, right? Something could go wrong that could debilitate her for the rest of her life. Or they couldn't follow through in the promise of the surgery that the thing couldn't be taken out. Or worst case scenario, things could go awfully wrong and she could pass away right there on the table. And so I saw Brooke's mom Brooke's dad, who was a lay elder, and Brooke. The mom was probably the strongest in the room who was able to tell the elders that I've, I've given myself over to the Lord enough. 
His will is what I want to be done. And I, I know that, that this could be positive or that this could be negative. But, and I remember her saying, this, this is the season of life that I'm in. And I want his will to be done. Now, Brooke's dad was to her left. And he was much more sobering in the moment and going, I don't want that season of life to come near me. I don't want to lose her. I don't want her to go through pain. I would rather have her here in suffering than for her to not be here at all, even though that she would be with the Lord. And there sat on the right side of Brooke's mom was 22-year-old Brooke, a senior in college. This is not something that a 22-year-old should be thinking through. Losing her mom, maybe mentally for a while, you can get over that, but losing a mom forever? The seasons of life that we all encounter are sometimes full of joy. They look like laughter and dancing, and they're, they're wonderful. We want, we want the song to never stop. And then sometimes seasons are dreadful and painful. And I'd imagine most people go through seasons, not one season at a time. You know, it's, it's Mother's Day, and I've, I've, met, I've never met a mother who says, yeah, I'm in this season of life, and then I'll be in this season of life, and then that'll stop, and I'll be in this season of life. So many things are overlapping in their life to where they are, in Christ, exhausted. And here we have, in our book, uh, another case study where the preacher is getting to the end where we should fear the Lord and keep his commandments. And so he's encountering different things in life that, that seem to tug away at that. You know, you don't need to fear the Lord and keep his commandments, but pursue wealth, like what happened last week in the sermon. Or pursue your, your sexual fulfillment. Or in this way, pursue the control of time. Or at least be at peace with that some things happen and then some things happen after that. I was amazed at reading uh, a, a journal article in a psychology handbook a couple of years ago when I was thinking through different discrepancies of counseling. And, and this one person made a, made a scale of life of what causes stress in people's lives. Things are obvious, like losing a spouse. That's 100 out of 100 points. You know, you would be stressed or exhausted or tired if you lost a spouse. But then there are other things. Who would have thought that being retired would make someone so stressful? You know, I, I get really anxious when I hear people who say they've been retired and they've never been busier in their life. I'm like, I don't think you know what retirement means. <laughs> or gaining a new family member, 40 points. A business readjustment, 40 points. Death of a close friend, not as high as a spouse, but still up there. Taking out a mortgage. Marriage, personal injury, being fired from work, marital reconciliation with the spouse, even reconciling with a spouse is stressful on people. And so we encounter God's word as, in many ways, exhausted Christians. But we can understand from this text that God sets the time and seasons forever so that people can stand in awe and in fear and in trust of who he is. We come at this test exhausted or, or feeling like our lives are chaotic or wondering if we'll ever own the day. You know, will carpe diem ever actually be a theme of our lives? But in this text, we see that God is grounding us in, in his will for his own glory. So I want us to ask several questions of the text. I want us to ask what is happening? What are we supposed to do about it? 
And why is God allowing this? If you're taking notes in the point of an outline, I just said the, the, the three points, but I'll go through them slowly throughout the sermon. The first question that we ask from this text, both in poetry and in prose, what is happening? Well, look with your eyes at the text. Look at what looks chaotic when you see it all together, but look at the strings of, of different extremes of life. We see the structure of the poem. Obviously, the, the heightened point is that there is time at work. Time is mentioned over 30 times, and there's this unique X pattern where things are crisscrossing in their meaning. So a time to weep and a time to laugh or a time to mourn and a time to dance. What we see here are, are the extremes of life that put flesh on the skeleton of what you and I endure in all of our lives. I heard someone say that, you know, for, for some people, numerology is important. You know, there are, there are seven verses here and there are uh, seven different lines and each line has, has two things. So you have seven times seven. You know, you have 28 things going on. And remember hearing Alistair Bragg said about this passage, you have seven times seven times two. What does that equal? Well, nothing. That's not the point at all. The point is there's, there's just a lot of things happening in one person's life and then you mismatch all these relationships together and you see a personality of the poem come out where we see extremes of life where this, this preacher is trapped in the tyranny of time and he's fatalistic about his own existence. There is a time for this and a time for that and no matter what time it is, there's always time for something and, and if you're ever on time for one thing, you're late for another thing. There's no chronological order in the poem. There's no real pattern or, or GPS movement that we can have. If we go here, then we know, well, we're three steps away from death. It just seems like there's a lot going on. And so within the personality of the poem, we see the context of the poem where, where the preacher is continually uh, searching. He's still on a quest of finding satisfaction in what God has revealed to him. So we should enjoy our life work, not uh, even though we're constantly tossed here and there in life. And so the preacher brings together both the big picture in the whole of life and the individual parts, the unique seasons of life, that will ultimately show us that our hope is not in our own control, but actually our, our lack of our own control in our lives is what actually gives us hope. So look at the control of what's happening here. The first, first part in this first point is to look at what's happening in the poem, but then look behind the text, if you will. Look at the control that's showing itself. Everything has a season. But we know from other texts of Scripture that though everything has a season in life, God does not have seasons. Isn't that remarkably encouraging? I, I remember hearing one of the most encouraging things I ever read in the Scriptures, like, that God does not sleep. He's constant and sovereign. The, the constant swings of, of time, like a child on a swing set going back and forth and back and forth, all those things are suspended and, and held firmly within the grip of God. Psalm 104, verse 5 tells us that he set the, found, the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. Anyone who's ever been a part of an earthquake knows how unsettling life really is. 
I mean, a slab has been there for like 35 years and you are just rustling around and pictures are falling off the wall. No, the ceiling isn't caving in. You realize I don't have control over anything in my life. And yet God is the one who set the earth on its foundations. And we not only see that everything has a season and that God does not have a season, but we also see Jesus here within the text and behind the text. We see Jesus in time taking place because God is sovereign over times and seasons. This tells us who Christ has been and is. The Bible says that Christ ordered the cadences of creation. That Romans 11 verse 36 reminds us that for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. So there's a time to be born, this text says. And we, I hope, are quickly reminded that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, Jesus, to be born of a woman. The text says that there's a time to die. And Jesus died on that day three days, three days before his resurrection. Not a day before, not a day after he was supposed to die. They were, they were long, people who were after him were longing for him to die way sooner than he was supposed to die. They were plotting against him, but they were not able to crucify him because at the appointed time, it would tell us in John 7 that his hour had not yet come. And when the hour did come, The scriptures say at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So we see Christ already being a fulfillment of what capturing or controlling the time really looks like. There's a time to rise, the text said. And we know that Jesus rose again on the third day. As the scriptures had promised from years and years past, from his birth to his death and then to his resurrection, Jesus did everything timely in his saving work. From his resurrection from the dead, Jesus rules the universe, the scriptures tell us. That he has sovereign authority over all time and over everything. And this is not just a a recalling of what Jesus did in his time and his death and resurrection, but also in his own ministry on earth. There was a time to plant, the preacher says. And Jesus used his disciples to plant the vineyard for the people of God. Where he says that I am the vine and you are the branches. There's a time to pluck up. And Jesus says every plant that my heavenly father has has not planted will be rooted up. There's a time to heal. Performing miracles of the kingdom he made the lame walk. And the deaf hear. And the blind see. And Jesus knew the time to throw out evil by throwing out the money changers in the temple. And also when it was time to build up, he built his church, his people on the confessions that he was and is and will be the living Christ. From an emotional standpoint, this man of sorrows that Isaiah talks about mourned at the tomb and wept for the lost. When it came to personal relationships, he sought out lost people, giving them hope and forgiving them. And he let go of those who refused them. He drew near to tax collectors and prostitutes and other sinners who knew just how much they needed a savior. And in the right time, he was there. He renounced scribes and Pharisees and other proud, self-proclaimed righteous people. And when it came to having a time to speak and a time to be silent, Jesus certainly spoke. 
in stories and in parables and in sermons and and in explaining the law to his people. And when it was time to be silent, even though many of us would probably yell at the top of our lungs at the trial that he endured, he was quiet like a sheep that was led to slaughter. Jesus knew the right time for everything. He knew the time to love, the time to show mercy. He knew the time to hate and to stand against evil. He knew the time for war as the church does battle every day against Satan. And soon he will show the time for peace when the Son of God will bring everlasting peace to his people, a true shalom in the city of God. So we see that within this text, this is, this is longing for a Savior who has perfect timing and control of this time for his people. So Jesus has this perfect timing. It's a cool way to look at this text where he is the fulfillment of this preacher's futile outlook of time and seasons and work. And I don't know about you, but just, just thinking about what Jesus did in fulfilling this time just makes me want to trust the timing of God more and more. I'm naturally an anxious person. I naturally love to be in control. I actually like to be where I want to be. The other day, Brooke and I went to a baseball game with some friends and we got there 30 minutes early, as was the predetermined time to get there 30 minutes early. And other people got there 25 minutes early. And for five minutes, I was questioning friendships and life and happiness. And, and, and I know the game isn't sold out, but am I ever going to get in the Isotopes game? I really want to be in there. Trusting God in his timing is, is not something that comes easy to us because we're, we're fallen people and we don't look to him enough. I was looking for my own fulfillment. I wanted to be in the baseball game. And, and some people were a little bit late because she was literally a nursing mother. You know, hard to, hard to hate someone for that. So we lack control in life and in seasons. But this should give us hope. To apply this to our life, you and I should seek to know him as in charge of everything. Not just the big things. I bet a lot of us see God as in charge of everything. The weather, our life. Will we have kids? Will we not have kids? What's going to happen with my parents as they get older? But also the minute details. The, the preacher brings out the extremes of life. But that doesn't mean that God is this empty vacuum in the middle of the extremes. So we should know him as in charge and we should see him through the different things in life. One of the ways that you can encourage someone as they're talking about life to you is to point out God's glory and his grace in that time. When I was freaking out about the baseball game, Brooke just politely said, you know, God is in control of this too. And you're like, Brooke, thank you. self-control. <laughs> so what's going on? The text shows us that God sets the times and the seasons forever. So we can come to this text and honestly be exhausted and honestly feel like we're, we're being tossed to and fro in this sea of life. But if we look up at who is holding all the seasons together, certainly that changes our perspective. So what's going on? God's in control. What am I supposed to do about it? Well, let's look at the struggle. In verse 9 through 11, 9 says, What gain has the worker from his toil? The answer, of course, is nothing. 
Work is toilsome. This rebuke of man's effort was, was shown and talked about in the previous chapters. Man is mortal, not immortal, but God gives him work. And the main point of this poem, I think, is that God established moments or times for a wide diversity of emotions in life. We're not robots, but we're allowed to, to see what God is doing and to react to his goodness. Is the world a place of joy? No, the preacher would say. God has assigned things to mankind which bring him, God, glory, and that keeps them alive and busy. And the preacher longs within that for purpose. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus Christ is the one who redeems his people from the vanity of life. The meaninglessness that the preacher is uh, inflicting on himself and suffering through, Jesus redeems his people from the futile world by subjecting himself to that same futile world so that he could free us from it. Galatians 3 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. He experienced the frustration of the world in a way that the preacher could never imagine. The preacher just wanted to escape And the Lord Jesus endured. His followers can experience deep significance exactly in those areas where the preacher feels this longing of purpose. Jesus restores the meaning of of wisdom, of labor, of work, of love, of life. Remember someone asking uh, several of us in college, just a conversation at life, what, what would you do what would you do if you realized that the resurrection wasn't true? And this one guy just honestly said, I would probably cry my eyes out. Because if the resurrection isn't true, now I'm paraphrasing, if the resurrection isn't true, then nothing else matters. It's, it's true of what the, the question is longing for in verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil if the resurrection didn't happen? Nothing. You're just like ants that get crushed by big monsters all around you. So we see that within the struggle, we can be content in God's understanding and not our own. Look at verse 11. It says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. And also he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I was reading about this part of this text and. And in a couple of commentaries, it said that, that the middle part of verse 11 causes for raging theological debate. And I just thought, man, what kind of weird conversation would that look like? Raging debate about these different words. But, but in reality, what we see is we want answers for how we are viewing life. His followers can experience significance, but in this text... It says he's made everything beautiful in its time. Another way to say it is he's made everything appropriate in its time. We long for what's been talked about in Genesis 1 verse 33 where it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Everything is appropriate, both in eternity past and also where we are in the present. And so there's this debate about within our souls of what does it mean for man to be given eternity on our hearts? What this means is that man isn't given a full understanding of everything, but a unique 
perspective that goes beyond our inner self. We're able to, to look at other things and see other things. We, we have a broadened horizon if we just had you know, blinders on our eyes. You know, if you, were, if you were trapped in a room or under a stairwell like in Harry Potter in the first book and you never made it out, then all of a sudden you go out and you look out and you go, that's New Mexico. I can see forever and ever and ever. Your view of eternity changes, right? All of a sudden you start seeing life differently. I had a friend in high school who, who, would, love to, who would love to climb on buildings. Now the town I grew up in, the, the highest Building was three stories tall, so you can't see much, but you can see, you know, traffic lights, like four of them at a time. And all of a sudden you see the, the city growing and developing, or that's where people used to live, or oh, that's where the new high school is going. Wow, I didn't know that golf course was there. And what this does is it actually makes men more frustrated. Because even though God gives us uh, a glimpse of, of greater eternal perspective on our hearts, knowing something actually causes us to wish we didn't know that at all. You ever known something about someone or something that you just wish you didn't know? Because it changes everything. You know, I know that when I started taking business classes in college, and you start talking about finances and saving for the future and how markets work, and all of a sudden you start panicking there in class as you're building these spreadsheets, and you're going, I'm going to starve. <laughs> I have an Excel spreadsheet on my computer, and it's titled Starvation. And the older I get, I keep having to make more formulas that fit into that Excel sheet because, you know, if Brooke and I have kids, well, you know, we'd, we'd love for them to go to college, but apparently that costs money because they're not going to be good at sports. <laughs> or what if they want things like shoes, you know, or, or what if I get sick? Or what if Brooke gets sick? All of a sudden, seeing life more expansive causes frustration in our hearts. But we can't fully fathom all of what God is doing. God may reveal stuff to us, but it's, it's like we have a veil over our eyes. God has made us thinkers and wonderers and, and imaginers, but God has not made us his equal. You, you think of all that God knows. And you can't think of all that God knows. You can't imagine all the knowledge that's in his mind. You know, some of us might know someone with photographic memory, and that's just astounding to me. Like, you never forget stuff. And that must be really frustrating because you never forget stuff. And here we know that, that God sees and knows and is in charge of everything. So while we may feel frustrated in time and in space, he's not sleeping. He doesn't worry. His plan continues talks about the end of this passage, how he's going, to, he's going to keep doing what he does. And when, when something comes, he will continue to be who he is. This idea or doctrine of the immutability of God applies to not only the nature of God, but also the character of God. The immutability of God is basically, the, in sum, that God is infinitely powerful and will never fail to accomplish his will. He is always God. He can never stop being God. He never takes a day off. He never takes a pit stop. He is God. Always has been and always will be. Second, within his attributes, so within his nature, he's always God. Within his attributes, God is immutable 
in that before the universe was called into existence, he was precisely the same that he is now. And he will remain so forever. The attributes of God are his very perfections, the essential qualities of his being. His power is inabated. His wisdom is undiminished. His holiness is faultless. Romans 1 verse 20 helps us in just categorizing this and summarizing this. It says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. One of the things I was told before I moved up here is someone said, you need to drive two hours south of Albuquerque at night and look up. And it's spectacular that God is not only over all of that, but made all of that and holds all of that together. And the God who made all of that has never stopped being the same. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that God is a spirit whose being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. It's, it's spectacular and amazing. If you don't know God like this, then you don't know God at all. And if you ever want to be, if you ever want to have more thirst for who God is, meditate on those things of who God is. The same God that made everything is the same God of, of what shows us in the person of Jesus. Holy and awesome is he. God is unchanging in his character, will, and covenant promises. Charles Spurgeon says that consider what thou owest, what we owest to his immutability. Though thou hast changest a thousand times, he has not changed once. Though thou hast, hast shifted thy intentions, he has not once swerved from his eternal purpose, but still has held thee fast. We, we come often into this room feeling exhausted, feeling like life is chaotic, but he certainly holds us fast in the same way that he holds all things together for his good. And so if we would just bring this down and flesh this out into our own lives, friend, do you trust God? Not just a one-time thing, not just do you trust in God, but do you, do you constantly and consistently trust God? Within the trust of God, we find protection. We see him as glorious. We have, we have a foretaste of eternal understanding, and that gives us joy. Take note of the exhaustions of your life and trust the Lord. Dig deep into the motives of your heart. Talk with a biblical counselor about your exhaustion or needing control, the, the frustrations under the authority of God may just turn into, by God's grace, this text says, into joy. Romans 11 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable are his ways. Ultimately, no one can discover what God is fully doing. We can look back and maybe have some idea. You know, why did my dad go to Iowa State? Iowa State, out of all places. Well, that's where my mom was. I'm sure just waiting for him to come. We look back and see the kind providence of the Lord. 
unfold, but we can't fully understand all of it. And we want to, and that makes us frustrated. What gain has the worker from his toil? Our flesh says nothing, but God says an eternal goodness. So, what are we supposed to do? Well, look at the struggle and be honest with it. But then secondly, under number two, look at what's best. Verse 12 verse, uh, through verse 13, it says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all that his toil. This is God's gift to man. Look at what's best in life. Be joyful in Christ's glory and in Christ's justification of his people. Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9, really helps us package this together. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Be joyful in Christ's glory, not in our own attempts at control. Next, do good in God's good name. The fuel of our life not comes from us trying to achieve God-likeness, but us resting and being fueled by the reality of what God has done for us. And then we get to eat and drink under Christ's gift. For the past year, Brooke and I have now been in Albuquerque for a year, and it feels like we've been here forever, and I mean that in the most positive way possible. But it's amazing, with, with, a, with a new town and a new home and a new neighborhood and new friends, you have, you have more things of which you're observing in people's lives. And also, you, you hold on to those things. Maybe for those of you who have moved either across town or maybe across the state, you still hold on to some relationships, and though it seems like it's been just an amazing year for me and Brooke, it has been a really difficult year for some of the people that we love deeply. And oh, how, how quickly I get anxious for them when I fill my mind with, with half-truths, not uh, eternal but biblical truths, where I stay up late thinking and pondering, are they going to be okay? What can I do to make things better? Whether they're back in Oklahoma, oh, if I, if I got to only be there, then this could work out, or just down the street or in my community group, oh, if I could just have the right thing to say. But I realize more and more that I can't help someone hold a child that they will never see again on this side of heaven. I can't help someone who will go to their death never feeling pain-free. I can't help someone live within the life of loneliness. I can't help the pain of someone who gave up the dream for their family or, or someone who's watching their father pass in their 50s. I can't help someone who's missing their mom. I can't help helping someone find their purpose. I can't repair someone's marriage. I can't help someone get a job. 
And we are tempted to stay up late just thinking thoughts that may not be true, may not be honorable, may not be right, rather than trusting in the God who is all those things. We're reminded quickly of the text in Romans 8 where Paul speaks about creation and how it was subjected to futility and is constantly groaning. And and you can look at all the relationships in your life and just see glimpses of those. You know, we might sing the song, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. But oftentimes we, we feel, I've got the joy, joy. I just want the song to be over down in my heart. When we pray for those around us, we are in part at work, working out God's ways through prayer. But one thing that I'm realizing more and more that in prayer we are submitting ourselves to the work of God. It's amazing that God never prays to us, but we pray to him. He's never asking us for our will to be done, but we ask for him for his will to be done. And so we come to the table hungry and exhausted. And because of Christ's work in his life and Christ's death on the cross and the reality that the tomb is empty, we can can come to the table, this text says, and in other parts of the scriptures, and we can eat and drink, for the Lord is in charge of all things. We might have glimpses of eternity in our hearts, but, but he knows the very hairs of everyone's head. He knows everything about everyone. He has a plan that doesn't just extend from when you were 10 until you're finished high school and then, well, you know, off to the races. But he is in charge over all things. And so bringing this text to us, do we live like we have a seat at the table? Like God wants us to enjoy his work. Like God wants us to enjoy his creation. In many ways, it looks like toil because we're under the sun. In many ways, work is hard and relationships are difficult and and things don't often work out for nice people. But we eat and drink of something that never runs out. And we have a seat at the table where we will never be excused. And do we live like that? Do we think like that? Do we pray like that? Do we sleep like that? Have you ever gone to a friend's house where where you just know that you belong? Isn't that a relaxing thing? That's every day with your life in Christ. So follow him through this life. So what am I supposed to do? Trust and live like he is in charge. Why is God allowing this? Verse 14 through 15. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it, but God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Look at the work that God has done. The preacher in his final conclusion from this text. Whatever God does endures forever and no one can change God's plan. What a a marvelous truth that is. No one can, can strip him from his glory or even attempt to add towards his majesty. No matter how frustrating we find this world, we must live to, we must learn to live within it pursuing his glory because it is moving. 
in proverbial form, the, the preacher speaks of everything that God does as enduring forever. And that God will keep doing what he does forever. And through that, he is attracting people to himself by building trust through awe of which he is and also fear of what he is and what he does. So look at the goal. Why is God allowing this? What is the goal of this text? The preacher asserts that God's purpose behind his actions is in part to strike fear in the hearts of his own. And that seems unsettling for us. The the idea that God would, would want to strike fear in us. I'm sure you've heard it um, where in the the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where someone asks about the main character, Aslan, is he safe? And and the beaver, I think, is the character. That's how you know it's a good book when beavers are talking. They ask him, is, is, is Aslan safe? And the character goes, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Everyone wants to be on the side of someone who is powerful and holy and majestic and it looks fearful in the eyes of the enemies and it even looks fearful on those who he's protecting. But look at what God does. Verse 10, he gives work. Verse 13, he gives food and drink. Verse 11, he gives mindfulness. In verse 11, he he acts in all of our lives for his people's good. In, In the poem at the beginning, he shows himself as in command. And later it says that God keeps seeking what he sought before in verse 15. So he does this in part to strike fear before him. The rebuke we would be reminded of given to Job. That all the power and glory of God is described as something that should rattle the cages of everyone who views him. If you ever encounter the image of God, it blinds some people. It strikes people on their faces but it strikes fear in all of us. Just a couple of verses from Job uh, chapter 38. The Lord answers Job, who was questioning God's goodness and control. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress like a man. I will question you and you will make it know to me. So he asked Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? I love this one. Verse 8. Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out of the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. When we look at who God is and we see who God is according to how he describes himself and how others describe him, it, it naturally strikes fear into our eyes. And this should be very comforting because when the Lord is on your side, though he is very fearful, he is on your side. In the same way that he, he traps waves, he holds on to his people. And Job's response is perfect where he just covers his mouth. So in this text, we see a God who is stable, though he is strikingly fearful. And we should fear him because his complete understanding of all things and his promise to bring it are to bring it to a redemptive fruition for his people. So we should revere revere him through our own lives. 
We should look to him for who he is. We should fear and have awe and trust in who he is. I go, I go running about once a month with my dog. And I don't like to hold on to the dog's leash because it stops and smells everything. So I just, I just let it run. And my dog is a real big scaredy cat. And so it never leaves with like within 10 feet of me. So we'll be in a jog and it'll always stay right here. And if it ever looks like it's gonna go beyond the sidewalk, I'll just go, hey, hey. And it, and it pulls right back in. It's amazing to think of, of what, it, what it means to trust in God where we, where we stay close to him. In part, he's drawing us near, but in part, we see him for who he is and we wanna be so close to him. God sets the time forever so people should stand in awe and have fear and trust him. We come to this text exhausted, wanting to own the time and, uh, as an obsession, but I hope that we can leave this text knowing what to do. We can fear the Lord in whom we can have trust in. We can have trust in the Lord who loves his people, who cares for his people, who isn't silent when we are wondering. We can trust in God's timing. In closing, I want to remind you of what's written about Jesus in Mark 6, where Jesus was praying on a hillside and he saw his disciples in a boat wandering through the sea and it looked like they were in trouble. And about the fourth watch of the night, it says, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought he was a ghost and cried out for they, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. Now there's much to be said about Jesus in this story. You read it or hear it, you would be right to make much of Jesus walking on water. Do not miss that incredible feature. Or he stops the wind completely. We've all tried dance to bring rain on and it never works. He actually stopped wind. But I think one of the most crucial parts of this text that if you place yourself in the shoes of the disciples, in the shoes of chaos, in the, pursue, in the shoes of darkness, in the shoes of dread, in the shoes of wondering if why death seems so imminent, it was Jesus who got into the boat with them. At the right time, he was their savior. For everything, there is a season. And in the true presence of Christ Jesus, it is a time of peace. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning grateful that you speak to us and you remind us of your glory and your control and your love for your people. And though we come to you honestly wondering about things in our life or wondering what this will look like or what that will look like or this will ever stop, we know that your love endures forever and that your faithfulness endures forever. And that you see us and love us. And that you have redeemed what we need to not only live in happiness on this side or in this place under the sun, but that you have made us new by Jesus' death on the cross so that we can live forever and ever in joy with you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.